Welcome to episode five of the NHS Armed Forces Health podcast, a series that aims to help you, the armed forces community, access the plethora of NHS services available. Through these episodes, we will look at different aspects of healthcare, from leaving service to finding a GP, taking care of mental and physical health, and provision for forces families. In today's episode, we are looking at mental health and where it inevitably intersects with physical health. Although we are keen to stress that not all veterans or reservists will suffer with mental ill health, you do not need to have served to face mental challenges. So in this episode, we cover everything from PTSD to anxiety and stress. For this, I'm joined by Dr. Dan Barnard, Doctor in Clinical Psychology and Specialist in Complex PTSD and Clinical Lead for NHS Veterans Mental Health Service. Tom Fox, Director at Fortify Mental Health Training and Joe Jukes, Mental Health Advocate for Suicide Prevention. We ask every guest as part of this podcast um, the same question. Why are you a member of the AFPPV and why are you here today? So, Dan, I'd like to start with you, please. So I'm here today as I work with veterans and have done for a a number of years, work in the health service and believe passionately that we uh, should help uh, the people that have served and the families of those people who've served. Um, And I'm doing whatever I can um, in my professional capacity to highlight this clinical area as a fundamentally important area that we are getting better with but that we can do better still where we've still got a long way to go. And, and I do that wherever I can in combination with people who have served. Um, so with the PPV um, voice it, uh, crucially involved, because then it makes the whole thing so much more real and authentic uh, rather than just listening to NHS professionals sounding like they know what they might be talking about. Actually, does it matter when you talk to people who've actually been there and done it and the families of people who've been there and done it and lived that life. Um, so that, that's why I'm here and uh, I'm delighted to be here. And Joe, how about you? Um, I'm a member because I've got lived experience of living with a veteran with service-attributed PTSD who unfortunately took his own life in 2018, um, which prompted me to highlight the, the lack of support we had as a family and some of the gaps that, that came about um, through his his care and to, to make a change going forward for not only those who are living with someone, but also those who have been bereaved um, in the community as well. Thank you, Joe. And we're going to talk a bit more about the work that you've done um, later on in the podcast. And Tom, um, you joined us in episode one, but um, tell us again, why are you a member of the AFPPV and why are you here? So I was diagnosed with um, service attributable post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but when I was diagnosed, I'd already, I'd already been diagnosed with depression um, and something else in the past as well, which which weren't quite right. Um, so it took quite a while to get the correct diagnosis. And then at the time, the services weren't in place with the NHS um, to specifically work with um, members of the armed forces. Uh, and so because of my own experiences, um, I felt when I was asked if I would join the PPV that um, it would be useful. Um, and that I could help the NHS to provide services that were fit for service um, and would help people in the future uh, and, and enable them not to have some of the same barriers that I came across when I actually tried to access service originally. Great to have you all here. So, Dan, in service and for mobilised reservists, mental health support is provided by Defence Medical Services. But obviously this isn't the case after they leave. What do you think the main barriers are to veterans once they've left, getting help for mental health of all kinds? And also, what do they need to know that might help them? So I think there are quite a few barriers for uh, veterans. Um, One I might start with is possibly they they themselves um, and the stigma that comes along with having a mental health difficulty and what that means to the person and whether or not that might reflect some weakness in them, for example, which, of course, I don't believe it does, but that is one barrier straight away. Um, It's so that they need to be okay with accepting that actually once you leave the forces, no, not everybody suffers with mental health difficulties. In fact, it's important that we debunk 
any myths about that, that actually many people have very good mental health afterwards. Um, but of course, there are some that do not. And the period of transition uh, coming out of the forces isn't always what people expect. It's not quite as plain sailing as it might they may have otherwise thought it might be. So another barrier is, um, I think, I guess, trusting people like me, civvies. You know, we haven't we haven't been there. We don't know what it is to have been there. And civvies vary in their, how tuned in they are to um, people who've served in the military. Some um, perhaps overlook it and don't understand the significance of having served and the fact that it, the training does turn you inside out. You know, we've had people in our service who we've interviewed and they said, you know, if I was a stick of rock, if you cut me in half, I'd say army all the way through. Um, and so civilians vary in their appreciation of of what it is to have served. But um, that it, there are services now that are getting better at understanding that world. Um, and so, but I think that's a barrier in people's mind when they're coming out. Who will I be able to talk to that will understand? Um, I think another thing is when, when you're in civilian life, different perhaps to military life, when it comes to your health and your well-being, the onus is on you to do something about that. So you come out and you're out in civvy street and you know if you're not feeling very good during your transition then who's going to know about that unless you go and tell them and if you don't if you're not registered with a gp for example um who are you going to go and uh, talk to about that so that it can get known so another thing that can be um a barrier i think is showing people who are about to leave the military that the onus will be upon them to, to, to flag to them that the period of transition can be tough, that they're not weak if they are struggling. It's quite normal to have a struggle, but also to have registered with a GP and actually have somewhere to go and encourage people who are veterans, which, of course, veterans aren't ever, civvies think of veterans. They think of a, a male and they think of somebody who's, you know, been and down in the ground and shooting and in, facing contact and and that is that some veterans are those but other veterans there are many many women who of course have served um there are people who may not have had um deployments um at all um, they may have only seen through um, in their training so um there may be people there's a very diverse group and i think that that is important civilian civilians are getting better at realizing that but i think that's probably an issue veterans as well coming out um i think the other thing is that the how will veterans know that if their difficulties are linked to what they've been just been through or what we call service attributable um or not that that's quite a difficult area um that can prevent people from coming forward um sometimes because again they may they may feel weak for example but um i would really really encourage people to come forward and have an assessment with people that will be tuned into their language they'll ask you questions that you might recognize like what's your service number for example um and they'll ask you a bit about the regiment that you served in and they'll make you feel that they care and they're tuned in and actually they can help you work through and decipher quite what's going on um and when it started and what the best help um would need to be um for, for you you've covered a huge amount of ground there but just a question so in previous episodes, we've been told that um, on leaving the service, go and join up to a GP practice early. And you said there, you know, go and talk to your GP. But just for anyone who's been a veteran for a long time, is it worth them going back to their GP and maybe telling them that they're an, a veteran if they haven't done that before? It really is. And um, there probably isn't enough time, but I can give you examples of that that are a bit heartrending about people that have sat on their difficulties for many years and never mentioned um, about having served or perhaps sadder still, they maybe they mentioned they'd served many years ago. And of course, people were, we were much less well tuned in then and it may have been overlooked. Um, and so, yes, it's very much worthwhile. If you, if you have a, a veteran friendly practice, um, then hopefully you, they, they will be, the GP will be very front foot and will be, be very, ask you directly whether you've served. But even if you haven't got a veteran-friendly accredited practice, absolutely let them know and just ask them about some of the services that might be in place now. You've, you understand that there are services specifically for people who've served. 
Opcourage is the name that we're, we're now uh, called. You can call it that if you remember it. But yes, it's worth it because there are, crucially, there are different pathways that are available for people that have served and their loved ones that the GP who's in front of you should know about, but maybe somebody else in that practice will know about if not. And they can find out if they're getting a bit of friendly pressure from the veteran that sat in front of them saying, I think you'll find that there's something that's maybe that I'm entitled to. That, that's, that's going to help. Okay, thank you. That's really useful. Joe. what would you like to add? I was just going to say from our experience, even if you've been registered with a GP for quite a few years, if they've recently become veteran um, aware or veteran accredited, sometimes they don't go back necessarily and check all of the existing patients because they're they're registering new patients. So I would go back and just double check that your your GP has got you registered as a veteran. Um, and like Dan said, if they haven't and that they, they haven't taken that accreditation, I would ask them, why not? And I know you can find that accreditation online, but would the GP service, would the GP practice be emailing or letting you know they are now veteran friendly? Not necessarily. Sometimes you have to go in and ask that question, or they might have something up on one of their, their billboards somewhere. Um, but I would just go in and ask the question. It's quite, it's quite, you can just ask the receptionist. You don't have to see a doctor. It's quite easy to do okay so both um dan yourself joe it's this idea of taking ownership which is really important so tom over to you if your gp doesn't have resources to hand or they're not veteran friendly um or they haven't had that conversation with you that dan outlined earlier where can you go um so there's a couple of things there i think you know the uh the idea, you know, we have to tell the, the, the GPs that we're veterans, really, or we're family members of veterans. That's one of the big things. It's on us to do that because no one can mind read. So we must let them know. And if they're not aware of what that is, then we can be good advocates. So if we're aware that um, veteran-friendly uh, GP practices exist, then we can actually put them in touch with the right people so they get the right information and become accredited themselves. So that's that's always a good thing. So if we do know what to do, or we do know it exists, we can help the GPs practice. That That's important in that respect. If us as my veterans, transitioning um, regular forces, reservists, or family members um, don't know our GP or are finding it hard to get an appointment, for instance, or, or whatever, you can self-refer. And that was one of the key points when we were um, working with the NHS um, to get this uh, service set up, which is now OpCourage, that you can self-refer. So if you feel that you can't access services through the normal route, you can pick the phone up. Now, OpCourage is very, very easy to find. You could just go on to NHS, or sorry, just go on to the, uh, the internet uh, and put NHS England OpCourage in. All the information will come up. Um, and it will tell you how to access the services there. And it's not just about health services either. You know, um, Op Courage itself is, is there for quite a lot of things. So it can, you can be put into, we'll talk more about that probably as we go on, but you can be put in touch with a lot more services just than health services. But it's a great starting point. And Joe, I'm going to bring you in here. Where are the gaps currently? Um, one, I was going to follow up on what Tom said. Um, some people find it quite hard to pick up a phone or to refer themselves in. If you are a carer or you're living with someone who you know is really struggling, you can actually refer them in and they will speak to the veteran, get their service number and then verbally get permission to speak to the person that's that's advocating for them. So I kind of just want to put it out there that it's it doesn't always rest on the person who's struggling. Sometimes family members or people who are very close to them can actually work with them and advocate for them. And that could just be the family members on the phone talking to Op Courage and pass the phone over to the veteran to say, I give permission and pass the phone back. As simple as that? Yeah, that's exactly what happened in, a, in, in our circumstance. And, and the, that was not an issue at all. Tom, is there anything else? Just wanted to add to what Joe was saying there. You know, The whole point of the service is, is about the service user, not the service itself. So it's about access and it's about getting that person access and, and opening doors and making it as easy as possible. So, yeah, you know, if, if you know a veteran and you're with them, don't worry about it. Just pick the phone up, make the call. No one's going to quiz you about, well, you know, are you entitled to access these services? That's not what this is. So don't feel as if that barrier is there. It, it isn't. Fantastic. And Tom, just... um. An extra question around some clarity. Could you just let us know what mental health supports in place for, for reservists and non-mobilised reservists and their families? What can they access? 
Um, so Op Courage is there for them too. Um, and that was one of the, because it was, it was really important to us that, you know, when we're talking about the armed forces, who are the armed forces? You know, if you're not in service at the moment, then that means that you're relying on uh, national health. Um, and so if you're not mobilized or if your family member um, is at home, for instance, and, and the other partners away or, or whatever it may be, but Op Courage is there for them too. So the, um, you know, it's designed for, well, help serving personnel that are leaving the services. So as soon as you're transitioning, you're, you're entitled to use it. Um, reservists, um, veterans, their family members. So it really is um, um, an inclusive service. That's really how we wanted it to be. And just wanted to add to what's being said about Op Courage. You know, it, we are really, really striving in that service. We're not going to pretend it's a perfect service, but it, it is a service that is going great guns to try and see people quickly as well. So we we are, you know, when we first set up, we were actually tar- had the same targets as um, for cancer hospitals. So this get people seen really sharpish. So I just reiterate the things the guys are saying, you know, do pick up the phone or send the email. There is a, there is an email option as well. Um, and you will be, you'll get a swift response as well. So you're not going to be sat there languishing for months on end. Okay. And, and Tom, the final point. Sometimes people might not want to access the service because I think they're going to be talking to a civvy. Um, the people that are at Op Courage, the professionals that are there, the, the nurses, the clinicians, they are trained to work with the armed forces community. They understand it. They know um, about the armed forces. So you're not going in blind. Um, so if that was to be a barrier for some people or some people could think negatively about accessing the service because of that or have a fear of that, that's not the case. There's going to be a, a safe person on the end who understands. Absolutely. Dan, Joe mentioned about the importance that a family member could call up courage. So just on that theme, in veteran-friendly GP surgeries, there's been a deliberate move to include the families more in cases of veterans who are experiencing mental um, ill health. Why is it important from your perspective that families are involved from the start? Thank you for the question. It's a really important area. And our school report, if there was one that says must it, must try harder on this, because we, we've got a long way to go still on this. So I want to I want to sort of claim some progress um, and are certainly an intention now to get a lot better on this. But why why would we want to do that? For for post-traumatic stress as an example, but it could be for any other mental health difficulty, people at home, your your loved ones, your partner your significant other are your their their eyes and ears they they see you they have context of how you are normally um they know they can see a change uh, far better perhaps arguably even than the clinician at the other end who then gets the slightly watered down version from the veteran themselves veterans you know p- possibly like no other profession have actually been trained actually to mask their distress and actually quell their fear and actually and so sometimes if a clinician asks them if they're okay that might be yeah I'm all right but but hang on a sec yesterday but you were having suicidal thoughts today yeah I know I'm better from that I passed it's gone so they're very good at minimizing uh, I know that it's a bit of a, a generalization but we find that in services all the time we've got training for other civvy services to try and uh, highlight this exact issue that they're very good at playing at playing down their distress so actually by clinicians enabling and getting to hear about what the partners and what the significant others, like I say, sometimes veterans who are really up against it are quite isolated even from their families sometimes, um, and maybe quite estranged, but they're likely to have invested, normally we find in some relationship somewhere, so it might be another veteran, for example, in a drop-in centre or somewhere. Um, and so we, we need to listen about listen to what's going on behind closed doors, if you like. So I think that's one of the areas that is one of the reasons why we really need to involve and listen to families more and i would just flag an issue which is around confidentiality here um joe touched on it earlier on about passing so getting consent to speak and then passing the phone across to uh to somebody who can speak on your behalf often in nhs services because confidentiality is so fundamental what can happen is clinicians aren't curious enough and so they might err on the side of not asking family members about things or think, oh, I can't really talk about that. I need to talk to the veteran first. Well, we're very much pushing, erring on the side of benefit of sharing. If you're in doubt, then share, actually, because in really such serious situations, 
it's a much better problem, if you like, to to be faced with that you've sh- overshared than is in a terrible, tragic situation where you chose not to share and not to listen to the family member and then something awful happens. So this is an area that we need, we also need to free to get better with fam- listening to families we also need to free up this area of, uh, around confidentiality and can i just ask from the op courage point of view we know that the family member or a fellow veteran can ring up on on the veteran's behalf but just practically in a gp surgery how would that work can the family member go in with the veteran uh, like just for sort of anyone who who wants to do something proactive yeah, um, both and. I mean, the, you you could flag to your GP there and then. You could say, oh, my my husband is, or my my wife is, or my partner is a veteran. They're really really struggling. Please, could you try and help them? You may then come across some of the problems I was just referring to about confidentiality, but that's some that's a, some conversation to be explored. Yeah, Joe, um, do you want to respond to that? How involved were you in the diagnosis and the ongoing help for your husband? Where did the system break down and how has it improved? So um, Dave was under a lot of um, charities before he went into, well, it was Tills at the time, um, which I found out and referred him into. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to come back on something that Tom said earlier about when when you're assessed by someone in Op Courage, it is people that will understand you. Dave came away from that assessment and said, I've never felt so understood and that I didn't have to keep explaining myself and I wasn't repeatedly asked the same questions. So from that perspective, it made him feel at ease once he'd been he'd been referred into it. But then I I was able to attend all of his appointments with him. I wrote um a kind of daily um journal really of what life was like at home because I couldn't attend his assessment with him because I was at work. And op, and op Courage were more than willing to read that, put it into his files so that they understood the, the 360 degree viewpoint of what he was like. Because Dave would quite openly say to any professional, you ask me if I'm OK and I'll be like, yeah, I'm fine. You ask her and you'll actually get the truth. And she'll she'll tell you things. He found it difficult to be quite um, reflective on his own behaviour because from his perspective, how he behaved was was normal to him. He hated that word normal, um, but he didn't see a problem with it. It was people from outside that saw a problem with it. So he really needed that kind of input from someone else to be able to go, oh, okay, so that that's quite difficult, or you're walking on a bit of eggshells there, or maybe me isolating under the bed covers for 36 hours at a time is probably not <laughs> conducive to home life. Um, and I found all the professionals were really welcoming of me sitting in with him, advocating for him, because he found it quite verbally quite difficult to explain how he felt. But at home, we had many conversations and I saw lots of things that maybe he would forget sometimes because, you know, he was he was so mentally ill at times that he couldn't quite remember certain instances. He disassociated quite a lot of times. So he wouldn't remember necessarily what he'd said and what he'd done. But then I've, I've always found all the professionals really welcoming. Um, I think the service broke down for us in the fact that although I was advocating for him and really professionals relied on me giving them the 360 degree viewpoint, they equally then looked at me, but you're not the patient. So they then dismissed some of what I was saying. Um, and just focus on what he was saying, which was it, it was a bit of a, a disjointed um, care system at that time. Um, obviously, in in hindsight, every professional that we I've spoken to since, because I have engaged with every single person that w- was involved in in his care, have have looked back at it and said, "Yeah, I think I would make a difference with my practice from now on. I wouldn't probably behave like that moving forward." But it, it goes back to what Dan was saying about the confidentiality. We found that such a, a a really hard thing to get get over because in one respect, Dave would give permission for me to be involved and for doctors to talk to me. But then if I phoned up sometimes to give them feedback on something, they would say, but you're not the patient and it's confidential and I can only talk to him. So that 
caused quite a few of the breakdowns of communication between all the different agencies. I think since our experience, I can honestly say that things have definitely improved since 2018. I think families are being spoken about by more people. They're being recognised, their input, that the carer status. A lot of families don't see themselves as carers. They just see themselves as a wife or a partner or a sister or a brother or a friend, but actually they are carers and they equally don't see themselves as deserving support in their own right to enable them to carry out that role. I think gradually we're starting to talk about that a little bit more. I think that goes back to what we were talking about before. It's the the whole weakness. If you're a carer, that means he's really ill and, and people don't like that kind of label being put on them. Um, I think op courage has been spoken about more. I think professionals, I found from my experience, professionals are more than willing to hear people's stories. They don't expect you to be overly positive. They want to hear the points that could be improved and then make those improvements. And I think the more people that share their lived experience in a positive and proactive way, not in a in a point scoring or a finger pointing manner, because that's not going to get anybody anywhere. It's it's to learn from the things that maybe didn't go well to improve because nothing's perfect in this world. And, and how would anybody know unless you offer your lived experience, which is obviously why I'm <laughs> I'm doing what I'm doing. But it, it's massively improved. And I think people just need to let go sometimes of the past and how it used to be and actually listen to what users are saying now and what advocates are saying and listen to how positively things are moving forward. It's not going to change overnight, but would you want it to? Because if it did, it wouldn't be a great system. It would just be a Band-Aid. And that's not what it's about. It's about a long-term commitment and change in the way that everyone deals with things. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Joe. So many brilliant points there. Let go of the past, listen to users. I think formalise your role as a carer. Take the emotion out of that word. It is your role and sort of be proud of that and stand up as well. Thank you. Now, Tom, as a veteran, can you tell us about your own experience of the system around mental health? Yeah, so see, my really, my, my experience of it was quite drawn out. Um, I started to have problems um, probably back in 2007 that, that, that started coming to a head. Um, 2008, something like that. I, I started to get headaches. I actually felt like I had a mental block. My my brain actually felt like it was getting hot, and I was having headaches, and I was trying to think. I was a wealth manager at the time. I was uh, I was financial advisor with, with a bank, quite a technical role. I found I was making mistakes. My memory started going. Um, I started to become a little bit, you know, negative about myself, uh, and that reflected, you know, to, to other people as well. So perhaps I've even become a little bit abrasive. I then started to get chest pains. Uh, musculoskeletal issues. Um, I thought I had a heart attack at one point. I was actually taken into University College London. Um, I was in there for two days. They um, checked me over, uh, put me on a series of tests. Um, and and for, the, for the headaches, I saw a neurologist. And um, both of those things came back as inconclusive. There was no physical issues. But at no point did anyone say to me, actually, this could be related to something else. Um, and so this went on for, for a few years um, until I was finally, um, I went to see a doctor one day um, again, I was doing quite a technical, high stress, um, high level role. And, uh, I just felt like I couldn't get out of bed anymore. I just couldn't go to work. I, I could not be, it just felt too much. You know, everything just felt too much. The world seemed too much to be honest with you. And I couldn't see much point in it anymore. Um, and it was at that point I went to see my GP. Um, and she actually said to me, you know, she, she spent a little bit of extra time with me and actually said, well, who, who are you? What were you doing before this then? And I'd started explaining where I was and what I've been doing and um, that was X-Forces and you know and then it you could see a light bulb moment in the room to be honest with you and she turned around to me and said look I don't think you've got depression I don't think you're um you, you haven't got any chest problems and it's not a brain tumor I think you're deeply unwell and you need to be referred to a specialized service um and it had taken so it had taken what 10 years or so to actually get to a point when a GP actually asked me that question about who I was, which as a wealth manager and a financial advisor, I did 
every day before we'd even think about doing anything about someone's money. Do you know what I mean? So it was chalk and cheese about the service. That was... So I was referred then to Combat Stress, um, who made the formal diagnosis, put me through treatment, education, uh, and helped me come to terms with how I felt about myself about having this illness. Because I, I felt in some ways emasculated. I also felt as if my um, personality had been taken. I didn't know who I was. I thought mental illness was for other people. It wasn't for me. Um, and so coming to terms with that and then gradually realizing that I didn't need to be afraid of it. Um, and a few people have spoken about what well, I think Joe spoke about advocacy and Dan as well about actually having the strength to let people know, you know, not hide away. Um, cause that's a massive problem and it really does stop people's recovery. You know, they're, they're afraid to let people know that they've got this illness that needs support and it, 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 you know, and it really does need a lot of support around the person for them to recover properly. Um, and they sort of hide from that through shame or, or fear or fear of weakness. Um, so looking back on my own, um, I suppose my own story or what, or what happened to me coming into, uh, or being invited to work for or work with, uh, the PPV, um, it was, it, I just wanted that to not happen to anyone else. That, that's really my aim <laughs> with the PPV is that everything we do is all about the person and about helping that person, whoever they are accessing that service, not have to go through the same thing as me. And I've seen the service change um, drastically for the better. I've seen the services change, what's come online, uh, and, and also the the actual, you know, the, the people want to get this done. This isn't a directive that's been thrown at the NHS and they've picked it up and gone, oh, we've got to do this. This is like there's a drive behind, right, great, we've been given the ball with this, let's make it good. Um, and I've seen that, the enthusiasm from people right from the top down. And everyone I've spoken to, I've not met anyone in the service that doesn't want this to work and some services to be better. Um, and so that makes me feel that we're doing the right thing. You know, we're working. Again, this whole idea about, you know, perhaps someone uh, fearing accessing services because the person won't speak their language. They don't know anything about military. I had that. You know, I've been through that. I've, I had to educate someone about, you know, someone was trying to treat me and I had to go through my life and they, they had no idea that we'd been in Northern Ireland for 30 years. They didn't understand, you know, when I was 18, uh, the Gulf War kicked off. And, and as soon as I came out of training, there was a war um, or that I was in Bosnia um, and that we were protecting, again, religious wars and we were, we were protecting people from being massacred. And so all of these things that I had lived through from, from sort of the age of 17, 18 up until sort of leaving in my 30s, or going on to other things and then leaving my face. The person that was talking to me wasn't aware of any of these things. And, and so I found that quite challenging. I felt like I was giving an ed education or a history lesson every time I spoke with this person, um, which was a barrier. Um, that, you know, again, that's not there anymore. People that are there now working with the military services, the specialised services, are trained to have these conversations. The point that, you, that you're making, you know, the lived experience, talking about your story, sharing your story, both Joe and, and yourself, Tom, is so important for change to happen and change is happening still more change obviously needs to happen and thank goodness for that doctor tom who asked the extra questions and but dan i i want to um bring you in now there seems to be a divide of sorts between those suffering ptsd and those suffering mental ill health that perhaps occurs later down the line following service the latter seem to be more reluctant to seek help uh, have you seen this in your own work? And what might you say to someone um, or to encourage someone who worries they may not be serious enough to go to a doctor? Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you. There's a lot in um, the question. I think one of it takes giving opportunity to mention about um, different types of mental health difficulty, PTSD being one of them, including complex PTSD and a very um, significant and debilitating and real problem it is. It isn't the only mental health difficulty by a country mile, however. There's lots of research that shows that it's roughly commensurate with the general population, apart from people who've actually served in uh, and, and faced uh, actual contact and combat, where it is higher. But it's still not higher, as in sometimes I think people talk about PTSD as if it's literally every other veteran who's got PTSD. Um, and it, so I am not for a moment taking this opportunity to suggest that PTSD isn't very real and isn't part of uh, some veterans' life. But it's not all about PTSD. Sometimes people have what we might think of as lower level types of difficulty or even things that might not have reached the same level of okayness, if you like, in 
civilian life, you know, saying you've got PTSD, people recognize that's a significant difficulty. But it, if you say that I've, I'm struggling with my alcohol misuse and that my mood's pretty low and I get panic attacks, that has a different sort of connotation, arguably, for lots of people. And I think there are lots of veterans who struggle with the fact that they have mental health problems, but they don't necessarily have PTSD. And I think they may be sitting on that, or, that, or indeed they may only come forward if they think they might meet a criteria for PTSD, which is um, sort of slightly more um, okay to have, um, if, if that point comes across okay. But all of the mental health difficulties that people will have, including low mood, including finding it very difficult to adjust to civilian life, civilian life, um, in, including becoming perhaps very anxious about certain situations, um, struggling with the fact that you haven't got an adrenaline-filled life anymore and actually you're sitting with all sorts of sort of agitations and you haven't got so all, these sorts of problems are all present in lots of people I think and um, I think so yes the question the bit about the question of are they reluctant to come forward yeah we do find that and it's often then when once they have come forward um, that we can encourage them in the way that I just have that by saying look it's still a legitimate problem you know you're still really struggling to engage with your life you're struggling to function and you're not going for that job interview because you're so held back by your anxiety. It's okay to struggle with that. You're still the person that you thought that perhaps you were just because you've got. So, yes, um, we do experience that. And I think this thing about um, people worrying about they're not serious enough. Um, well, on two, two different bits to that. One is it's okay, come forward with anything you want. Um, and if it turns out that actually it's not very serious and then then where's the harm there that you've had a conversation with somebody probably pretty soon after you've asked for it and you've had a good check over um, and actually you can agree that there isn't any need for anything to wade into anything else, but maybe they could link you up with a bit of help with your pension or maybe they could just sort of get you a little bit higher up that housing list or whatever it is, that's still meaningful stuff. And I think other times we have people who come forward who have I mean, people are so deserving. They come forward so that they've been struggling with shame. Tom mentioned the word shame. That's a huge area in in the area of mental health and treating particularly with veterans. Um, and they've sat on actually really serious level of debilitation from the things that they've been through. So not always in combat, sometimes in things like bullying, sometimes in the fact that may, you know maybe they're a veteran from a different ethnic minority and that they've experienced bullying and they can't speak about that because, oh my God, if I spoke about that, imagine what's going to happen. Or, well, they, I can't speak about that because it's under the Official Secrets Act. Imagine if I, or imagine it, or if you're from the LGBTQ plus community, again, maybe you've sat on things. We've had such powerful stories about somebody, I obviously can't go into too much detail about somebody who came forward was dealing with so much shame. I've never sat with somebody who is so anxious about opening up about the fact that actually they were sexually abused when they were in uh, in the forces. Um, and you know, it, the the power of it's a long intervention that took place that um, very skillfully done by a colleague who's a psychologist. But but the power of that person being able to finally get a voice and talk about that stuff and actually deal with that shame was life-changing, unforgettable, um, absolutely unforgettable for, for them and to change their life hugely. So sometimes, yeah, you just have a little MOT and have a go and have a check and it's fine, anything serious enough. Other times, just come forward because you know that actually you've got a really serious battle that you're dealing with. Hugely informative. Let the expert decide if it's serious enough. Um, and all the mental health difficulties from low mood to PTSD have legitimacy. Tom, you must have spoken to a lot of veterans that feel this way. What advice would you give them? Yeah, I, I see. I get lots of. I talk to a lot of people. People are quite open with me as well, um, and I get calls out of the blue from people you would never expect, um, and I've learned to expect it <laughs> in some respects. So, um, and people talk to me about all sorts of things, and it, and it seems a recurrent theme. You know that they don't feel that they deserve um, to access service, or they don't feel they've done enough um, to be ill. Um, or perhaps they know, perhaps be, something's happened to them afterwards and they think, well, this service isn't for me then because it's just for people that have been injured in, in or, or, or have a mental illness uh, through combat experiences or whatever. Um, or they're afraid. They feel the person's going to be judging them as they're, they're going, oh, actually, well, why are you accessing the services? This is for people that have been to war, for instance, and this isn't for you. That, that's not what it's about. You know, the, the professionals that are there are not there to judge you. It's not about them. 
and they, they they will say, it's not about me, it's about you. You know, what, what can we do for you? Let me work with you and understand you and, and let's see where that goes. Um, which, as Dan was saying there, you know, so we don't have to have that fear. You know, that's, that's self-enforced in some ways. You know, no one's going to judge you. No one's going to criticize you. They're there to listen to you and help you and guide you. Um, and hopefully offer you the right support. And it doesn't matter what um, you know, religion, culture, it doesn't matter. No one's there to judge you. Yeah, this is a this is about helping people, um, doing the right thing for for a human, regardless of of who you are, where you come from, or whatever it would be. Um, and again, reservists sometimes don't think that they can access these services or family members. It is there for you too. You know, you are absolutely hundred percent deserving of the service. That's what we've uh, worked to help the NHS uh, provide. But and again, people thinking about perhaps. You know, as you said, they may not have deployed on operations. They may not have, um, you know, you don't have to have been kicking doors down and and fighting house to house to to become unwell. And as Dan again said, you know, you could become ill after service. You know, you think about leaving service in its own right. There's you're trying to adapt to change. There's sort of a sense of loss, loss of purpose, uh, maybe isolation. Maybe there's fa- uh, financial issues, um, family strains, relocation, all these sort of things as well. And so that's a lot of stress. And that can make anyone ill, yeah, or unwell, or go for a period of low mental health. So you can still access the service. You don't have to have been a, an MC winner, <laughs> storming doors. You know, you can you can be anyone, and the service is there for you as well. So don't minimise it. Don't play the issue down. Um, you know, access the service. Thank you, Tom. Joe, I, I want to um, come to you now. You found quite a lack of support from those bereaved as a result of combat-related complex PTSD. How did you get through that time and what are you now doing to help others? Um, I think when Dave first died, I was referred to um, Cruise because Cruise make um, anyone that's been bereaved by suicide is a priority because it's classed as a traumatic bereavement. Um, and it it, um, it kind of goes back to what Tom was saying about how he felt when he had to explain things to someone I had to sit there and explain what it was actually like to live with someone with severe PTSD for many years. So there's trauma involved in that part. And then when they've actually then taken their life, there's an extra trauma involved. And it made me disengage. with. I never went back for, for another uh, appointment. I just found I was having to educate them on what it was actually like which made me disengage. So it was the same thing as what Tom said. Once you feel you're having to educate someone, you're like, oh, this isn't my job. Uh, I'm here for help. I'm not here to to tell you, you know, and give you a whole life story. Um, And so after that, I kind of contacted a lot of the the major charities, asked if there was anything that that they offered for those who had been bereaved by suicide. Because in the year that Dave took his life, it was quite prominent in, in the news that year, um, and there was quite a few um, high profile cases that year. And I basically was told that although they knew that they had to do something for those bereaved, it wasn't in their priorities. Um, families at the time were not really a priority at all. So I decided to set up um, a, a peer support um, group for anyone that had been bereaved by suicide. Uh, we've now got. Um, nearly a hundred members. Um, and it's, it's all family members. We don't differentiate between mums, dads, sisters, siblings are very often forgotten about the impact that, that it has on them. Um, and we also don't differentiate between the, the manner that someone took their life. So whether it's combat related and they had official PTSD or whether they'd have, you know, something had happened while they were in training and then they took their life. It's it, the trauma is the same no matter what. There's no, I don't like all this hierarchy thing that people, you know, do. I don't, I don't like all of that. Everyone's the same. Um, and the peer support group has really been a massive benefit to to many families. It's given them a collective voice as well as somewhere for them to speak to people that have actually know how they think and know how they feel, because sometimes you find that. People get a bit um, bored of bereavement after about a year. They go, all right, are you not over it yet? And unfortunately, with suicide, it's it's a very traumatic event. Su- uh, inquests can take up to two years to happen. Families are very involved in all of that inquest. There's, there can be service inquiries involved. 
And there's there's literally nowhere for these families to get any guidance to have any advice whatsoever. Nobody even knows how an inquest happens unless you've actually been through one, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, I kind of made sure that other people had the help that I didn't have. And, and that's what being part of this panel is all about. It's changing things. My philosophy is I can't do anything about what's happened. What's happened has happened. But I can make a difference to the way that families are supported moving forward, both before the death and after the death. And that's that's my intention. And that's why I do what I do. And Joe, I mean, you are a fantastic individual and, and what an amazing philosophy to have. And what you've done um, to help others is is and continue to do is just incredible. So we're called for the fallen. Um, we are on Twitter, we are on Facebook, and we have our own website. So you know, if you just put in for the fallen, it's families of military suicide. That's that's our our title. Um, we should come up in a search bar on Google. Brilliant. So we're just coming to the closing part of the podcast now. And Dan, I want to ask you, what are your hopes for the future? Well, I think that we're in a uh, a period of time where. Certainly in the 10 years or so I've been working with armed forces, I've not known it as collaborative as it's feeling and as positive and the momentum feels different now, um, whether it's the momentum of the PPV and the involvement of people who've actually served um, or, or their loved ones, whether it's the, the fact that they are now properly in the mix, rather than just sort of asking service users and families whether or not they agree with you. It's actually asking them to help you design uh, what you're doing and the way that you deliver a service. So I'm really encouraged gen generally by the involvement of uh, PPV, but also what previously there's been such amazing stuff done in the charities sector and NHS, if you like, is really sort of catching up with a lot of that and hopefully um, making some of it even better too. But I think we need a joining together is where I'm heading with this, Alice. We need a, a pulling together, a collaboration at real scale to pull towards the same positive ends. We've got so much skill and so much passion and so much knowledge and service um, available, but we're often pulling in different directions. Can't we just integrate? Can't we just, like Joe said, do it in the right spirit, like Tom said, do it, do it positively but just all pulled together. So the tectonic plates all coming together is what I'm hoping for, Alice. And so that um, in probably the next five years time, we'll be in, a, in as much an improved position again as we are going back five years. And I'll just give a plug to something which I talk about um, quite a lot whenever I get the opportunity. It is relevant and it's linked to this thing about be telling somebody the same thing over and over again when when somebody's had an assessment when a veteran has felt engaged with a conversation that's tuned into them made asked them a service and made them feel like yet yeah, this person gets me more i'm engaged and then that person that clinician tries to get them a service in let's say a crisis team or maybe even an inpatient bed sometimes if somebody's really poorly what can happen is that unfortunately the assessment is not trusted and it's repeated and a lot of the momentum that you've got has then been lost um, because service X, whatever it is, redoes the assessment, doesn't really care about the fact the person's a veteran, thinks they're a bit of a drinker and then discharges them. And tragically, sometimes things go really seriously wrong at that point. What could really help with that is an agreed framework, a trusted framework, almost like an embossed, yet this person has had a, uh, a sound assessment by a trained professional um, whichever juncture that is, whether it's in a combat stress or a, um, walking with the wounded or what, or whether it's in op courage, and we agree that this is a trusted assessment and so that the next service, yes, they can still have their clinical opinion. We can't dictate that they have to have their clinical opinion, but they can't just disregard the assessment. So that what we, we might think of as a trusted assessment framework or something like that, that will go some way to, to, to that tectonic shift I was on about a minute ago. And ultimately, better for the service user as well. So thank you. Joe. Um, what are your hopes for the future in easing these problems through the AFPPV? I think um, hopefully families will be given 
the confidence to see themselves as an integral and important part in the future of veterans' mental health as carers, as a voice that that can advocate for them and receiving support in their own right. And those that are bereaved by suicide, unfortunately, will receive the the support that they, they are due and that they should receive. Brilliant. Thank you. And finally, Tom, for anyone out there who is suffering or has a loved one who is suffering, what advice would you give them? I would say pick up the phone and access the service. Have that initial conversation. It is so important. Um, Recovery can't start until you have that conversation. That was the first rung on the ladder for me. Um, You know, it's so, so important, but it's equally so, so hard to have that conversation. So, you know, putting your trust in the people at the end of the line is really, really hard. I understand that. I've been there. Um, But again, you know, as I say, this is why we are working on the PPV to try and ensure that the person that is at the other end of the phone that picks that phone up uh, understands you. They're not going to be judging you. They they have an idea of who you are, what your background could be. They they are empathetic. They understand uh, what you're talking about. And, you know, you don't have to have any fear with that. And it is a minefield. For a long time, you know, everyone sort of relied on charities. The charities were were providing the care that wasn't there, really, specialist care that wasn't there. And so we're changing from that now. The NHS is providing the services, but it is also working with those charities. Um, so you have this much more joined up collaborative approach. Initially, we, we were talking about a passport of sorts for the for the veteran or the person that was accident, and that's sort of coming in now. And so that's making a huge difference to the service that gets that the person gets or the quality of service that person gets. And that's from accessing, and it might be all the way down through to helping with housing, helping with finance, helping with other worries, helping with family concerns that can all support the person to make a better recovery. Um, so pick the phone up. That's my that's my ultimate advice. Don't fear, don't hang around, pick the phone up and um, and start the recovery. Thank you to all my guests today, Dan, Tom and Joe, and to you for listening. In episode six, we'll be looking at armed forces families and the provision for them when someone is in active service and when they have left. As usual, we will be speaking to a mix of experts, service users and those responsible for influencing change. We hope you will join us. Goodbye.